Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. The world's greatest humanitarian crisis has been unfolding for the past few years in Yemen. At the moment, it's estimated about 24 million people are in need of assistance. Around 100,000 have died since 2015, and there are probably about 4 million displaced from their homes. It's also a conflict that has dragged in countries across the Middle East region, from Saudi to Iran to Sudan. A lot of people have been concerned and terrified by what's been happening in Yemen, but it's a very difficult one to get your head around the complexity of the different uh, warring parties, making it all the more difficult to understand. So I'm delighted to have with us today Laura Cretney, who's a PhD researcher at the University of Durham, whose work focuses on the conflict in Yemen. Laura is an Arabic speaker and has been living in Muscat, Oman, on and off over the last few years. And she also works with a range of charities in the Middle East region, working with victims of conflict in Yemen and Syria. Laura, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you very much for having me. Laura, if we were going to try to sort of help the listener catch up, would you be able to sort of give us a kind of background to the key players and what what the different parties are trying to achieve? Looking at um, the overall kind of dynamics of the conflict, we have on the one hand the Houthis, which are a militia and political group from the north of the country, fighting against the internationally recognised government. Now, as we both know, um, it's never as simple as it seems. And there are a number of other sort of smaller conflicts taking place within the conflict um, and a number of different actors and groups fighting on the ground who each have their own grievances and agendas. And we've also got regional powers as well who are intervening on behalf, on the part of different parties. So they're acting as patrons and financing um, different actors to the conflict which complicates things further, um, as does the role of the international community. For example, uh, the UK and the US um, and other European powers who have been uh, selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and have widely been criticised for their role um, in facilitating some of the atrocities and crimes that have taken place in Yemen. Um, At the moment, what we're seeing is the beginnings of a new um, front in the war in the city of Marib, where there are already a number of internally displaced people living. Um, And so the international community and particularly the humanitarian and international NGO community are extremely worried. So it really is an incredibly complex situation and we're watching it evolve in real time at the moment on the ground um, with the assault on Matib and also uh, the new administration in the US, which does seem to be taking a new approach to what's going on in Yemen. Could could you say a little bit, just sort of um, to, to help people understand where we are at the moment, about how things have evolved 
with President Biden's election? Sure. Um, So since President Biden took office in January, there have been a number of positive steps taken on Yemen. Uh, The administration has prioritised the Yemen file from the get-go. And there have been indications that the administration is beginning to think about Yemen and its Yemen policy through a Yemen lens, as opposed to through the lens um, of, for example, Saudi Arabia or other US foreign policy interests in the region. Um, There are a couple of of developments on the policy front uh, that really exemplify that, including um, one that's that's caused a lot of controversy over the last couple of months, which is the decision of the incoming administration uh, to revoke the official designation of Ansarullah, which is the official name of the Houthis, as a terrorist organization. However, that's not to say that the Houthis are not, frankly, pretty bad actors who could very easily be described at the very least a criminal, if not a terrorist organization, when you take into account the way that they operate and things like enforced disappearances, attacks on journalists, the recruitment of child fighters, all of which takes place in the areas under their control. Um, But essentially, the debate around the designation was less about whether or not the Houthis actually constitute a terrorist group than it was about the practical implications and the humanitarian and consequences for the people inside Yemen. So many people would probably agree that the decision by the Biden administration was the right one and that it took place for the right reasons, including the UN, which has welcomed the move. Um, However, the Biden administration has arguably missed an opportunity here by revoking the designation so quickly with no strings attached. And many are actually criticizing the US now for not using this to extract some kind of leverage from the Houthis, for example, uh, guarantees relating to the delivery of aid or even a ceasefire um, or a guarantee that they would not launch um, military assaults outside of the areas they already control. As I mentioned in the introduction there, the Yemen conflict is in incredibly complicated. If anything, it seems to be getting worse, not better. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. In reality, the conflict and the country itself is very fractured. And there have been a number of key players with different agendas and grievances. Sometimes they're fighting alongside each other and sometimes against one another. And they're frequently mischaracterized and often misunderstood by the international media. So um, the Houthis, for example, are often presented as a pro-Iranian Shia militia, and they're often kind of banded together with the likes of Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, But in reality, they're very distinct. So they are ultimately a political party and militia group. They are Shia Muslims from the Zaydi school of Islam. Zaydi Shiism is actually quite different to the 12 Shiism practiced in Iran. And in some ways, Zaydism actually shares more similarities with certain Sunni schools of Islam than other Shia offshoots. So that brings us to a really important misconception around the Houthis already, which is this idea that they're fighting a religiously motivated ideological war and that they're inherently linked to Iran by this ideology, which is not the case. Um, Back in 2014, when the Houthis came down from the mountains and took control of the capital, there was very little hard evidence to suggest that the Iranian regime had provided actual support, whether in the form of weapons, ammunition or logistics to the Houthis. In fact, one of the main reasons they were able to succeed was not because of Iranian support, but because of a strategic alliance that they struck with the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, and his political party, the GPC. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point. And just just for the, for the listener's benefit, I, I can share a, a little experience I had a long time ago. I worked as a diplomat in Yemen, and this was in the very early days of the Houthi rebellion, long before they could control the country or a large part of the country. And the British government was asked to uh, to help with this alleged Iranian connection 
And at that time, the Yemeni government could provide zero evidence for it. So it just rather illustrates that point that it's often been overstated, that connection to Iran. Although I think what's what's happened, as we've seen, um, is that it has become somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy and that as Saudi Arabia and its allies began their bombing campaign in 2015 and as Riyadh and its allies stepped up their rhetoric that Iran was behind the Houthis, Iran has actually began to step up its support and is now very much involved in the conflict. Yeah. You've mentioned there the Saudis and obviously you've got a coalition of Gulf Arab countries with Saudi Arabia, the, the, the most influential, but also some other Arab countries further afield. Um, so whose side are they on and, and, and what does that represent, the so-called internationally recognised government? So the internationally recognised government despite its name, does not actually exercise the influence on the ground that its name suggests. Um, It is supported by Saudi Arabia. um, And in fact, many government government ministers, including President Hadi himself, have been essentially trying to govern from outside of Yemen, many of them in Saudi Arabia for the last few years. So it's quite difficult to take seriously their claims to represent the people of Yemen. It's basically a a government in exile. Exactly, yes. I mean, and also in the, in the South, the legitimacy of the government there is severely contested. And so the government um, have found themselves at points fighting a conflict within a conflict against elements in the South, including uh, the Southern Transitional Council or the STC, uh, which are calling for the secession of the South of Yemen and for its independence. And this goes back to when the North, when North and South Yemen were two separate states, which were unified politically in 1990 in a very troubled and flawed unification process. So effectively, you've got the Houthis in the north controlling most of the population of the country. You've got the so-called government, which is actually an exile in Saudi Arabia. And then you've got a separatist group called the STC. But I think it's worth trying to understand, why has this gone on so long? How, how is this war sustaining itself? So there are a number of reasons why it's proving so difficult to reach a solution. And these include the war economy. And then, of course, there's the intervention of foreign powers and the complication that that creates on the, on the ground. But the wars also brought to the fore all of these historical issues, which are not just kind of surface level political disputes, but in fact, in many cases, actually go much deeper to questions of identity and how people actually think and feel about what being Yemeni means. So I mentioned the war economy. This plays a huge role because economically speaking, there's very little incentive for Yemenis on the ground to lay down their arms and come to the negotiating table. In fact, in much of Yemen, the war has destroyed the legitimate local economy and taken away opportunities for ordinary Yemenis. Meanwhile, you've got these huge and well-entrenched, corrupt and black market networks. And there are people benefiting from these corrupt systems and patronage networks at every level of society, or people who at least have more to lose and less to gain from attempting to operate outside of them. I wanted to just touch a bit on, in the time we've got left, on the kind of the external players. We've talked a little bit about the Saudis. Uh, At the beginning of the conflict, Qatar was very committed to the Saudi coalition. And and then you've also got Oman, a a neighboring country who sometimes tries to act as a sort of honest broker between the Saudis and the Iranians. But what do you see um, the objectives, particularly of the Saudis as, as the sort of most powerful regional player, and then the objectives of the Iranians? How would you try to sort of describe those two, those two key players? 
Yeah, I think you've touched on something really important here, which is that this isn't simply just a proxy conflict between Saudi and Iran. There are actually a, a lot of other kind of regional rivalries. So kind of most, most obviously, we've got Saudi Arabia, which officially supports the internationally recognized government and has been leading the coalition against the Houthis. And the Saudis have been interfering with Yemeni affairs for decades in an attempt to basically keep Yemen stable enough not to pose a security threat that could spill over the Saudi border, but also weak enough that it didn't pose a significant challenge to the kingdom's dominance on the Arabian Peninsula. And I think this is a pretty good way of summing up Saudi policy in Yemen. So in 2015, when the coalition began launching airstrikes against the Houthis, Riyadh assumed that this would be a quick and easy victory for them. But this has obviously not been the case. Um, They've become embroiled in the conflict. They've been subject to accusations of human rights abuses and war crimes. It's been a PR disaster for them, which has complicated their relationships with their allies in the West. So Saudi Arabia is in this position now where they can't just cut their losses and leave Yemen. And if they did, then they would risk creating a vacuum that could be could be filled by Iran and leaving their neighboring state with the intent and the capability clearly to directly attack Saudi Arabia. Now, the Iranians, on the other hand, have really had an opportunity in Yemen to cost the Saudis hugely at very little cost to themselves. Now, slightly more interesting and perhaps less straightforward in terms of the role that they're playing in Yemen is the United Arab Emirates. So the UAE initially joined the Saudi-led campaign of launching airstrikes against the Houthis. And on paper, at least, they shared the same interests of restoring the internationally recognized government. In reality, however, the Saudis and the Emiratis' interests in Yemen are slightly different, and they have at times ended up backing opposing groups in the south of the country. And so this has led the UAE at times to be backing militias and groups in the south, fighting against the recognized government. Um, Meanwhile, many people also point to the UAE's activity in southern Yemen as part of a kind of wider strategy to establish a presence along the Yemeni coast, including the island of Socotra, as part of its wider colonial ambitions in the Red Sea and the Horn of Africa, although that's probably another story for another day. Yeah, it probably is, although it is fascinating. And one of the things I'm sure that a lot of uh, the listeners in this country will feel very concerned about is the degree to which huge sums of money uh, have been made by British arms manufacturers in selling uh, weapons to to the Saudis and their Gulf allies. And those weapons have have subsequently been employed in the conflict. So uh, I suppose a, a simple and a more complex question, a simple question was, if the Brits stopped selling those weapons, would it have a material impact on the conflict? And and a more complicated question might be, uh, why is Britain uh, supporting Saudi Arabia and its allies in this way? Well, I think you've almost answered the second question yourself when you said how lucrative and how high value a lot of these these weapons contracts are. I think it will be very interesting to see whether the UK um, does follow the lead of President Biden, who actually, on a a slightly more positive note, has um, halted um, its support for the Saudi-led offensive and has halted the sale of weapons that would be used from Yemen pending a review. When we're talking about why it's difficult to end the war, I think it's also very important to mention some of the challenges with the UN process. So a huge sticking point so far has been UN Security Security Council Resolution 2216, uh, which was issued in 2015 to reaffirm the UN support for President Hadi um, and to condemn the Houthis and call on them to withdraw from the territory they had control of. 
Now, in light of the way that events have unfolded in the years since and huge gains that the Houthis have made, this now seems at best highly unrealistic and at worst actually making makes the UN fundamentally incapable of delivering a political solution. I suppose if, if we were going to try and sort of uh, r- round things up, um, clearly the, the Saudi-Iran situation, uh, as you have, I think, very clearly explained... The, the the Saudis almost created the, the Iranian presence in in Yemen. Although I'm sure some people might might argue with that that formulation. Um, but if you're looking at the wider conflict between Saudi and Iran, and with Yemen as part of that, could you just say in a few sentences sort of how you see that going, particularly where with President Biden back in play and and the Americans wanting to renegotiate the Iranian nuclear deal. I think what's very interesting about about Yemen's role um, in relation to the JCPOA, or the nuclear deal, is that many see um, the Obama administration as having essentially sacrificed Yemen for the sake of preserving the JCPOA, um, in that they tacitly allowed Saudi Arabia to do what they wanted with Yemen in exchange for Saudi Arabia's acceptance of the Iran nuclear deal. President Biden now finds himself in a situation where if in order to have any hope at salvaging the nuclear deal, Yemen is now central to that policy, which I think is is positive in many ways. Um, He's going to have to prioritize this. And I think we're seeing that already. Um, so in the short term, at least, despite everything that's going on, um, we can only be optimistic that the administration is taking steps in the right direction. Well, that feels like a really good point to stop. Um, Laura, you've managed to explain one of the most complicated situations on planet Earth in, I think, an incredibly helpful and clear way. So I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us in the bunker. Thank you very much for having me. I'm sure I've probably created more questions than I've answered, but I really appreciate um, you giving me the opportunity to speak about Yemen. It's always a pleasure. Great. Thank you. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snap, and the producer was Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranovic, and audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson, and the Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.